0: Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Day One Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Drew Dudley. We had a bit of a glitch with the interview recording this week, so I lost the first 30 seconds. So I'm going to do the introduction of this week's guest here in post-production. Now, I met this guest last year when we were both speaking at an event, and I was speaking before her. The night before, I got to see her run through her presentation. And I have to tell you, I'm so glad that I was going on before her because the story she told, and we're gonna get into it this week in the interview, is remarkable and it's uplifting and it had me in tears. And I was just thinking, I'm so glad that I get to go before this woman because she's gonna blow the doors off. She's a veteran of leadership roles in several industries. She worked as executive director of the Coyote Point Environmental Museum. She was in senior leadership for the fifth largest public broadcaster in the US. And for 17 years, she served as CEO of the Make-A-Wish Foundation in the Greater Bay Area of San Francisco. Now, when she took that role, the organization had four staff. When she left, it had 28 and a budget of over 10 million. And Julia Roberts is going to play her in a movie. I'm thrilled to welcome Patricia Wilson to the Day One Leadership Podcast. Here's my interview with Patricia. Patricia, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. It was um, serendipitous that we met um, some months ago. So forever friends, I I know.
0: Uh, And you know what? Even though I recognize that after leading with that whole Julia Roberts thing, I'm kind of committed to discussing it immediately, but I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to start with this instead. I'm teasing it so <laughs> well, that the I, listeners lean in. I
1: still have not come to terms with it. It's, it's bizarre. I, honestly, when someone asks me, I can't make the words come out of my mouth because it sounds just too crazy for me to believe.
0: You're totally getting Erin brockovich <laughs>
1: Yeah. In fact, some people are relating to me going, you're total, the nonprofit version of Aaron Brockovich. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, but let me start with this before we get to why, because I love that story, but you've described yourself as an accidental CEO. Why is that?
1: Um, you know, it's it was nothing that I had, you know, a lot of people set career goals and, and I didn't set that. I've been guided by people in my career who um, saw something in me and would encourage me and be my coach and a mentor and so throughout my career I had benefited from people who encouraged me and said look I'm recommending to you this this job for you I want you I think you should think about it It's it and um so I've been very fortunate and I like to speak about that but I think that once you become a manager it becomes your moral obligation to do the same to spot talent to encourage it and to help those people along and I Um, So anyway, that's kind of my story in that I hadn't intended to be a CEO. It never even crossed my mind. Um, Drew, the first time I got promoted, I was in my 20s which was a long time ago, but it was customary at the time. I remember the company said, you know, we're promoting you. I was the first woman to be promoted, but I was being paid less than the men because the men had families to support. And that's how they, it was just that it was written. It was, so, you know, you start off in that way to say, okay, some things are possible and some things may be out of reach. And um, it was, thanks to guidance of people who would support me and recognize um, something they saw in me and would encourage me and say, go for this. And I always decided that I would try that. I didn't wanna not try something um, and regret it later. I decided it was better to take a risk. And even if I failed, I would learn something along the way. And that has served me well and it made me very happy actually.
0: So they openly said to you, you're not getting paid as much because you don't have a family to support?
1: Yeah. So men were paid more because they were family supporters than women. Yeah. And it was and it was perfectly legal and not only really legal, it was just the culture, right? So it it was in the eighties. Um and it was just a time to say, Yeah, this is how it is. Our company um, pays men this for this job and women this. <laughs>
0: Now, eventually it became the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. This strikes me, if you're going to run an organization, this strikes me as a pretty amazing opportunity. What was it like to have that job?
1: Absolutely. and So, after my experience becoming into um, leadership and management, um, somewhere along the way, um, I became a mom. And that made me really reflect about how I spent my time. And I was obviously ambitious. And But I took a step and said, you know, if I'm going to spend time away from my daughter, I want to do it in a meaningful way. So I made the decision to switch from for-profit and to work in the nonprofit field. I worked in public broadcasting, museums. Um, and then ultimately, I remember seeing the position and thinking it had a few kind of rocky experiences, which can happen in a nonprofit. You know, there's a lot of volunteers. You know, it's not the most competitive to attract great work. And so I was really, truly contemplating after um, 15 or so years in the nonprofit field of thinking about, you no, know, maybe I don't have to work at a nonprofit. I can volunteer. I can be on the board. And I started being a little pickier about the circumstances in which. I wanted to put myself in, in the environment, and and what I could create for my own successful environment. And I remember seeing the ad for Make-A-Wish and going, oh. Well, now that's something I could get behind because not only is it something I believe in, and you know, a sick child certainly speaks to me on so many levels. Um, and by that time, I had a, a, my second child, unfortunately um, healthy, but you can certainly have empathy for someone who's in that position. So I remember thinking about that and saying, "Wow!" And then it also said this creative piece. So I tend to be a rather a creative soul, and I'm a, I'm more process, less process-oriented and more results-oriented. I'm trying to think of how to get there and how to engage people, and that's always been something, you know, I, I remember organizing, you know, in high school, um, participating in a parade um, for our high school. And one of the other moms I wanted, I thought we should have horses and we should have, and it should be significant if we're going to do it. And I remember one of the owners, the other student's mom, who I was managed to convince her to allow me to borrow her horse. She goes, you know, I I don't know what you're going to do in life, but if I ever need anything done, I'm calling you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting there's a documentary about about in which you play a, a major role, and we'll talk about that in a minute. but somebody comments small or big, you don't say no to Patricia. Why is that because <laughs> that's an art that's I, a know, that's a skill that not everybody's got
1: <laughs> Well, the funny thing is. You know what? The first time I watched the documentary myself, right, and I heard people saying that I want i was just dying, right? <laughs> Pulling myself under the blanket, going, "Oh, jeez." But a- after getting past the embarrassment of that, you you begin to recognize what what a great honor that is, and the reason why they don't say no is I'm never asking for me. It's not about. Me what I want. I'm asking on behalf of a cause, a person, and I try to humanize it. And, and I also try to make people feel like they are part of that process. They're part of the success of it. And it's not my idea. It becomes our idea. And so I think if, if you need something done, you know, fundraising at a charity is kind of, you know, interesting. I think if you, if it's compelling, and you are solving a problem and you can communicate that, people are going to want to help you solve that problem um, if you allow them. And so the beauty of of Make-A-Wish is that it allowed me to engage people in the work itself, not just writing a check and sending it off, you know, never knowing what happened. They were partners with me in executing something. And I think that's the, the real difference is that engagement piece.
0: And you're making wishes come true as a career. Does it? Does it always? Is it always exciting, or does it ever eventually become about logistics and details? Is it one of those things that from the outside seems amazing, but when you do it, it becomes just a job? Or is it always about wow, I'm making wishes come true?
1: Um, for me, it was never ever a job. I know that there are some that can get a little complacent or have a bit of fatigue from being so emotionally charged Uh, but for me each time you know it it didn't matter how simple the wish was when you meet um, the family or you meet a child and understand the struggle that they've been with that is so human and it's so real and it just made me think like how can I I'll, I'll give you an example my mother passed away 20 years ago and she had terminal cancer and we're sitting in the oncologist's office, and the outcome was devastating, right? And he said, look, I, this is not going to change her long-term prognosis, but you if you look at it this way, she has the same chance of living tomorrow as you do. So what are you going to do to make it special? And while most of the children do survive their battles, in part, I think, to the spirit that they have from their medical team and their family. And, you know, that always stuck with me to say that, you know, that is an important lesson that I think we need to remember. Like, what are we going to do today to make that special? Uh, life is short. And what can I do So, this business of feeding the spirit and how important that is? That's just, you know, life, life experience and quality of life. We may not be good at measuring it, but when you really think about it, it's it's critical.
0: And as I was I was getting ready to talk to you today, obviously I wanted to talk about how amazing it is to make wishes come true, but I also thought about it and like you're working with children and families dealing with incredibly severe illnesses. And I started to realize, as you say, most of these children survive thanks to the help of amazing people. But there must be, it must be a job of extreme highs and lows. How do you keep an even keel? Like what strategies did you use? Because obviously it's probably a powerfully emotional job in the good and the negative. Like what strategies did you use to say, this is a job that's going to take it out of me on a daily basis, good and bad? How do you get through that?
1: Um, That's a great question. I remember I remember in the interview process being a little bit gun-shy and speaking with the woman who was conducting the search. And I said, I'm a little concerned. I said, how emotional would this job be? I said, look, I I can cry at a Hallmark commercial. <laughs> so, like, am I the right person for this? Um, and so we talked through that. And what I can share with you is most of the tears that I've shared. And there have been many but by far, the vast majority have been happy tears when a donor or someone who has resources opens up those resources in a way that is so much greater than I could have ever imagined. And with such compassion and love and generosity, that it's just so beautiful. And that, I mean, I. If anything, if you, I want to stand at the highest mountain and let people know to no, say, if you ask them, if you give them the opportunity to do something good, the vast majority will, and they'll exceed your expectation in a way. And so, how do we bring out that goodness in people, or empower them to want to make a difference? So there are, there were horrible sad times when I would lose a child, um, sometimes right before their wish um, and they didn't get to experience it or sometimes right after. But one of the, one of the wish dads reminded me early on I'd done a wish and a child was gravely ill and we did this wish and it was a bit of a heroic effort to make it happen and it was incredibly emotion for the, emotional for the family. And he came to visit me a couple of months after he passed away and reminded me that I have given a gift to the entire family. When I say I, it was me, right? It was the organization and the volunteers and the donors. And how important that was, even in his end-of-life situation, that we had given them something happy to remember, and pleasant. And it was an amazing gift, even though they lost their son, to have that memory that they were able to do this thing that made him so happy. Um, So you're reminded of the weight of an experience like this. Even if it's in end-of-life, sometimes it becomes even more important to the entire family and the survivors.
0: Now, there was one wish that... Everything you just said came together. I mean, people can listen and say, oh, I'm sure that people step up. But you've got the proof. And there's one that captured the whole world's attention. And that's what you were sharing the day we met. And I'm assuming it's the reason that you're being Aaron Brockoviched. So tell us about the Bat Kid wish.
1: So, you know, I've, I've done a number of wishes through almost 18 years when I had been at Make-A-Wish, and and so you've seen a lot. Some are very intimate and small and equally important and poignant to the family, and some you end up needing to cast a crew, right? So when I had a little boy who wanted to be the real Batman, (laughs) so first you have to figure out what's the real Batman to him, right? And I love thinking about that. And sometimes I have to coach volunteers and staff and they'll kind of go in a direction and say, we can do this, we can do this, go, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's for this one. It's for five-year-old. And let's think about it from his perspective. Let's make it great for him. So, you know, I did my usual due diligence on this and tried to figure out what Batman looked like to him. And um, I presented several options and um, his family and the Wish wishbrenners said, oh, my gosh, yeah, his inspiration was the old Adam West TV show. So I thought I would essentially recreate a TV show and maybe have three capers. And based on the child's age, I think about how long the wish should last. And, you know, so there becomes a little bit of a formula when you're giving a child an experience. You want a beginning, a middle, and an end. You want the end to be celebratory and cheering them on. So as I start to kind of put down ideas, and we, we thought that San Francisco seemed like, I was, you'll love it. I was on my way home from a late night board meeting, and I was driving in uh, San Francisco, and I was watching the fog roll in. And I look at that, it was rather dramatic, and I said, no, San Francisco could look like Gotham City. I wonder if this could be one of the locations they might want to think about. Because they were from way, way northern California, six hours north of San Francisco, right on the Oregon border. And um, so the location kind of came to be, and the family said, oh, my gosh, that sounds, you know. And they were were wondering, like, how on earth are you going to turn San Francisco into Gotham City? And I said, I have no earthly idea, but (laughs) let me work on it. So – I had the gift of time on this wish because they wanted to wait until after he was out of active chemotherapy and after he'd had a surgery to have his port removed. So I got the wish file and let's say January, February and we had set um, a November date. So I had the gift of time to be creative and to tell people about this and to start engaging people. But from that very first moment Drew, um, I, I think um finding my friend uh EJ who did a wish with me the 10 years prior and me yeah. asking him to be Batman and and calling my friend who's a police chief and saying you know can I can I get your help on that everything was yes Yes, yes, <laughs> and so it ballooned into this team of people who wanted to participate in this and just thought, "How precious is this You know he thinks of himself as a superhero, he wants the opportunity to save san francisco um, and it just uh, it it snowballed to a certain level, right that I had a team and it was. A, we were all ready, and this was going to be a surprise to him. We had the circus school, and he was going to get his lessons how to be a superhero. But then, but then it went viral, um, and then it became an entirely different monster that I had uh, the likes of which none of us had ever experienced. And then it became, and much of the documentary is about that, like how we. Uh, managed to survive that experience and and for it to remain um, a positive experience. I mean, if you told me through the course of fulfilling one cancer patient five-year-old's wish that we could have engaged billions of impressions on social media in a positive way, particularly now, you look at how snarky and angry and negative it is uh, in social media and there's not many great news stories to follow. And the man, the fact that we were able to do this, you um, know, is, is I could have never imagined that this was even even possible.
0: And, and the documentary you're referring to is called Bat Kid Begins. And we're going to put a link to it here on the podcast. And I watched it again. I watched it when it came out, but I watched it again this morning just to get ready to talk to you. And I I will, I have no shame in saying like this thing made me tear up five or six times. And there's not even a particularly profound specific moment. There's just this collection of people. Now you said you wanted to turn, you know, San Francisco into Gotham city and you initially envisioned what a block perhaps. And you know, a couple of hundred people coming out. What actually happened on that day?
1: So I don't, I don't know that, I don't even know that I can articulate it. It was such a a crazy whirlwind. I mean, but how about this? How about getting a text at five in the morning from a dear friend of mine who's works at a sports station saying there are already satellite dishes in Union Square set up. (laughs) So you think, oh my goodness. Or, Or the moment, the moment where, doing the wish, and I tried telling the media, like, you know, we said, they, they were all asking for the specifics, And where is the Lamborghini coming out? And I said, look, there's going to be nothing to see, it's just, it's just a Lamborghini coming out of a garage, and so I told them, I said, that's not going to be a good place to get photos, I would go here or here, and I get out, we get at the garage, and I walk out, and, I, you know, I've never seen quite a sight. There, there there are 25,000 people in Union Square to watch a car come out of a garage.
0: 25,000 people.
1: <laughs> there are so many helicopters overhead, and I never even thought about helicopters before. So the helicopters followed us the entire day. And the, the crazy thing about that is that only drew more attention to us. And, you know, we had a route. I didn't even know what route we were going to take right? I had just said, go from here to here. I didn't even think about the exact route. It didn't seem important to me normally. Like when you're driving to the grocery store, you just get there, right? You don't necessarily print it out for everybody which which path you're taking. Well, in this case, I didn't even know the exact path, but because we had helicopters, Everyone was able to follow every step. And so as the day went on, more and more and more people joined because they wanted to come down and experience this outpouring of love and compassion that happened. It was, it was the most beautiful thing. And, and short of giving birth to my two children, the most profound experience of my life.
0: Now, this was a big viral story, but just in case some of our listeners have never heard of it, which, you know, the problem with the internet is if it happened three years ago, and it happened three years ago this month, some people may never have been aware it existed. Can you take us through what you planned for this young man, Miles, for that day? You you mentioned there's 25,000 people waiting for Lamborghini to come out. What was the plan for the day?
1: Um, Essentially... We were recreating an episode of the old Batman series, and I had three papers set up for our bat kid. And we had a Batman, a full-grown, because Miles was normally so shy that we thought it would be better to have an adult kind of with him to help him with these papers. And we started out, and you know, I texted a friend of mine, and I said, what kind of car looks like a Batmobile? And he said mine, and I said that's the right answer. Can I use your car? <laughs> so he had a Lamborghini, and I found someone who slapped a you know a, a Batman sticker on it, and that was you know my first. I needed a Batmobile, right? So that was I had a Batmobile, and then I decided it would be fun to rescue a damsel in distress because I started watching the old TV shows, and actually the the gentleman who is the former stunt double who played Batman for me. His wife was who we asked to be the damsel in distress because I knew Batman would save his wife, right? (laughs) There's no chance of messing that up. And if you're going to be in San Francisco, you know, what are you going to be rescued from? A cable car, of course. (laughs) So we thought that would be fun and very iconic. And then um, we were um, decided that we had someone robbing a bank, which was really a commercial kind of clothing source, an old bank of Italy, um, and it still had a lot of the bank vault in it. And so we thought that was a good location um, mm. to have that kid stop a bank robber. In this case, it was the Riddler. And then lastly, uh, Miles is a huge San Francisco Giants fan. So, being a big baseball fan, we thought there would be a good kidnapping. And that the penguin would kidnap uh, Lucille, which is our baseball mascot. And you know, nobody really picked up the little silliness effects. We thought we picked penguins and penguins and seals. You get it? (laughs) So, and then it was going to end with a celebration with the mayor at City Hall. And I thought that's the location that we maybe would have. Um, ideally 200 people to cheer him and say thank you Batman for saving San Francisco which is by the way very typical to the craziness I do with wishes Uh, it's just that this one you know caught on like wildfire and invited (laughs) invited uh, a lot of people to want to participate and people you know when I heard I'm watching Twitter at night right so I work a crazy day come home look at Twitter mortified and then realized there were people who were flying in. And, you know, I'd never experienced anything like it. Um, so it was um, quite an experience for the two weeks leading up to the wish and and uh, every day since then, actually.
0: It's In a day that obviously is at a profound impact on you, beginning to end, is there a moment that stood out for you?
1: You know, um when you're going through something that is that emotional and that intense, uh, I think you're you're operating on pure adrenaline. Um, but a couple of the things I was thankful to lessons I had learned early on, because I had a lot of pressure. Um, so I had a lot of pressure and, and a lot of conflict actually that was happening on all sides from people who were pushing me to say, you, you should be fundraising. Why aren't you using this opportunity? And I, and I, how about this offer? We can do this and we can get him on stage. And so each time I had to think about what it is we were trying to accomplish and go back to that integrity piece to go, wait a minute, but Miles won't know who that is. And that's not going to lend itself to the wish that becomes something else. Or, you know, when I declined the fundraise and I said, no, I, I'm not going to fundraise. This is this is not our answer to the Ice Bucket Challenge. This is a wish, and let's keep it pure. And I think it'll be so positive people will give in the end, which they did. But it was just pure instinct that I was operating to say, no, this is not fundraising. So I was helpful. That it was helpful that I had some great advisors. Of, you know, that I relied on and that I truly valued, and I would run them by whatever was coming at me, whatever day was happening, and said, you know, my instincts are this, or like the day that Twitter called and said, do you need some help? I said, oh, hell yes. <laughs> what can you do for me? And he said, what is your social media strategy? And I said, to stay alive. <laughs> because you know, you know, if you watch social media, you know that a story can go negative in any moment. And I was very sensitive to that. I didn't want that to be hurt the child's experience. So the whole idea is doing something special and help him through a very dark time. So leading up to it, I was very pleased that um, I'd had the life experience I did to know when I don't know and when to reach out and when to check with people and say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this, how do you feel about that, how should I manage this, and listening to others and and relying on their guidance. And then post-Wish, I think you have a chance to really let it sink in, and I had no idea of the global impact of this wish, the people that would seek me out, find me on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter, and just want to share their experience, maybe of losing a loved one or why it was important for them to come that day and they're in the middle of their own battle for cancer, but they found so much inspiration and hope they just had to be there around all those people and experience that. So that took a while to sink in because you're not aware during the moment of some of the impact that you're having. And I mean, the fact that someone wanted to do a documentary that was completely independent, and completely separately funded, blew me away. (laughs) And you begin to understand the magnitude um, of a story like this and, and how many people were touched and, and how many people want to do something that is truly meaningful and truly make, helping to make the world a better place.
0: What's the biggest life and leadership lessons you've taken from this experience?
1: I, I always go back to kind of two things. Um, well, and speaking of, so the, the when we... Analyzed. We had a service who analyzed all the social media, and there were two comments that people had that rose to the top in, in terms of not just hundreds, not just thousands, <laughs> you know, that's great, kind of crazy to hear, right? Millions. We reached over two billion impressions on Twitter alone. And the two things that were way above the rest, one was it was the best thing that ever happened in San Francisco. Right? So just the power of that statement that people are making, we did make it, right? And the second was it renewed people's faith in humanity, like, wow. So like, I can still get emotional thinking about that because I think we need that. And so the lesson for me is this engagement piece. And I'd love to find ways to allow people to engage in their community in any way. It doesn't have to be. I mean, there's so many important causes where you can make a difference based on what, you know, whatever you're passionate about. And, uh, you know, the, the, the piece that not a whole lot of people picked up, but this was kind of a let it live again goodness. So the documentary filmmaker funded the documentary on its own. It ended up being picked up by Warner Brothers and had a theater release. And she donated all of her funds. So essentially she was a volunteer. So she donated everything to the Bat Kid Fund, which benefited six San Francisco charities. And so you think about the beauty of that. How often do you get some sort of beautiful... It's just a beautiful experience. I don't even know what to, you know, what do you call that? Is an experience. It's a, some people are saying phenomenon. The other crazy thing, sometimes I'll be on a plane or talking to someone and and it's the kind of event where people say, oh, I remember where I was that day. It's that kind of news event that where people are able to go back and say, I could, they'll tell you exactly where they were, what city they were in, if they were in a, they wanted to be in San Francisco, but if they So that's pretty incredible to think of the power of, in this case, goodness. And I, I would love to find a way to harness that because we, our world could sure use more of it.
0: And and despite all of that, you said that Bat Kid is that Bat Kid wish was not your biggest professional accomplishment. What was?
1: Um, My biggest accomplishment is assembling the team that made that happen. So, to me, um, you know, and I know it's a little bit hokey, but it's true, and it's how I feel it. To say I worked with, if, if you watch the documentary, you know, the, the only thing I have to caution you is you're going to fall in love. You're going to fall in love with everyone I work with. You're going to see my family, my friends, the people I count on and say, hey, can you, you know, can you drive do Lamborghini for me? Hey, can I borrow your car? Can I borrow this? Can I borrow your store? <laughs> and um, you'll see the... Um, compassionate people that I work with all the time, and um, you know, and, and with whom I have the privilege to know and love. And that's, to me, that's the the greatest accomplishment. Is that we had this team that we assembled that we were able to execute so uh, beautifully.
0: So, what strategies would you share for surrounding yourself with the best people, both professionally and personally? Because that's what really did strike me as, as getting to know you and watching this documentary is that you're incredibly good at surrounding yourself with talented people who empower you, not just professionally, but a lot of the people did that didn't work for you, they're your friends. And I know that you know, we're the, you're, the, you're the average of the five people you keep closest to you. Do you have strategies, both professionally or personally, and do they mix together on how to, how to pick the right people to keep close to you?
1: Well, um you know, you're sitting in an interview and you're trying to pick the people and you think, you know, but you don't really know until you see people in every kind of situation, you know, and sometimes adversity brings out the best or worst in people. So I, I, you can do what you want to for screening and hiring, but it's kind of hard. Um, and so... You know, I think that goes back to one of the lessons I learned as an accidental CEO and that I followed that same formula and said, look, people coached me along the way and saw opportunity for me. And they saw something that I didn't see in myself and they encouraged me and almost pushed me out of my comfort zone sometimes. And so I try to do the same when I'm leading and I see talent and say, you know, I think you'd be really good at this. Let's work on that. Encourage people, give them creativity. And instead of focusing on the least successful, I think all too often in business, that's what's focused on, the least performers. Focus on that. I disagree. Spend most of your energy on those who are your top performers and who have the potential to be your top performers. That's where you focus on excellence. And for the, the bottom performers, you know what? They're not happy. who's happy not being successful? And so sometimes um, even success is helping someone find their success, and it might be outside the organization and and doing them a favor in the organization at the same time. So for me, part of that team building means really selecting the right team to the degree you can. And when it's not working out, give them every opportunity to succeed, but when they don't. You know, put them out of their misery and help everyone, and it invigorates the whole team to have people who are really excited to work together and who are all focused on the same thing. And then I, I guess the last piece that I, I think is important, that we can get lost in why you're doing something. And that Kid was an example that would have been easy to do that. And the beauty of the team I had assembled is nobody wanted the same, none of us. We would all argue over who was going to take an interview. And I'd say, oh, my God, I'm tired of the sound of my own voice. Can't someone else? Um, and that was kind of beauty that nobody was, you know, a hot dog and nobody was ego. They were all very humble people. Um, they would have done the same wish with no publicity whatsoever. That's not at all. This is the team I assembled, and it would have been just as beautiful for Miles. Fortunately, At five years old, he didn't understand what a big crowd was, and he's not on the internet. So, (laughs) most of what happened, um, he was oblivious to, and I loved that as well. So, the wish was still pure and lovely for him. You know, he um, just, we just surpassed the uh, three year anniversary of that kid, and he has a new baby brother. He is in remission, and he's still. Feels very much that he saved San Francisco and he thinks he thinks I run San Francisco which is hysterical um, but in his view it's so to me that it's that what was our goal and we succeeded we made it an extraordinary experience for this five-year-old battling cancer and in doing so motivated thousands millions of other people which is pretty remarkable
0: let's talk about day one so You've had all of these experiences. You had 17 years making other people's wishes come true and their families. But imagine you could go back to your first day of high school and meet with Patricia on that day. And she says to you, all right, give me three things I need to know about the world that's going to make my life happier and more successful. What do you tell her?
1: I think, you know, I, I have thought about that a little bit since you um, poised that. It. And it, it's such a, a great way to make people really reflect and think. Uh, I think for me, um, what I thought I knew then um, is is so not, <laughs> is, is you know, I thought that, you know, you would learn everything you needed to know through books and in the classroom. And I was so wrong that so much of what I needed to know about reading people, motivating people, encouraging um, a commitment to excellence, compassion, all that happens through life experience. And in some cases for me, I, I know I evolved as a human being by becoming a mother because that taught me patience and to how to be a coach and to courage. Um, and so that was a great uh, lesson for me. But I think that I wasn't prepared when I think about high school, I'm like you have no idea that it's not just about straight knowledge and what you learn in a classroom, so much of life and team building and experiences and leadership is based on inspiration and style and finding a way to adjust your leadership based on the challenge that you have at that moment. You can't just always be the same kind of leader. You have to adjust along the way. And so those are things I think I had no idea, but that I needed to just have lots of life experience and a lot of people want to go into management right away or they want to see themselves, you know, I want to, they want to excel so quickly and the say, you know, it's, give yourself time. You need, you need that life experience to be able to fully handle the challenges that may come your way.
0: What if you could give her a question, a, a question that by the end of every day for the rest of her life, she'd make sure she had an answer for, what would you challenge her to make sure she answered each day?
1: I think, are you being true to yourself? Now, what are you doing to make the world a better place? I think you have a responsibility to do so and to do it in a way that has integrity. But it's also, all right, does it make you happy? At the end of the day, when you think about it and you think about relationships you have and you think there's only one person who's responsible for your happiness and it's you and you're the CEO of that. So once you put yourself in charge of that, you start to think, well, what makes me happy? And in my case, and I try to encourage other people to say, you know, when you volunteer at other organizations, when you make a commitment to say, I, I want to find a way to make the world a better place. And that's a huge statement, and I use it a lot, but there, I think there are many ways, and they're all admirable, and one's not more important than the other. They all have to be done. There's plenty of good work that needs to be done. And I think if you chip away at that, you get way more back than you give. And that how rewarding is that? That I get to get so much joy, and it makes me a happy person. And it surrounds you with other people who like to be like you. And uh, and that's a that's a great thing.
0: It's interesting you use the term chip away at it because a big part of my work focuses on that. Is it's amazing to do days like the Bad Kid Wish. It's probably amazing to do any day of a wish, but I guess my way of sort of being true to myself is to say, these are the values I want to live each day and then making sure I do it. So I love asking people, what are the values that you try to live every day? If someone followed you around for a month and at the end of it, I said, what are the values that are most important to this person? What values do you hope that person who followed you around would say you're trying to put out in the world every day?
1: I, I hope it's just a level of maybe it's the engagement piece or that contagious goodness, right? That once you do it, it, it becomes habit and it also feels so good. You want to do it more and it inspires others. So, who, I mean, those are the kind of leaders that you want to surround yourself with, right? Um, not the, you know, fear mongering. You want to go to people who genuinely want to do good, who are doing it for altruistic reasons. There's no ego involved. But it has this wonderful residual effect. To go, it feels good. Now I want to do it again. Now I want to invite other people. I want to inspire others. Um, and I think that that is just the most ex- extraordinary thing ever. <laughs> it's just, it's just uh, magic. And, and you know, I'm. Um, all goofy and um, warm because I have my two adult children who are descending on my home this weekend, and it's a special occasion for me. And I am trying to figure out like when I can stop crying when they're in the same room, and it's and it's happy tears. And I wish happy tears for everyone. I, you know, I just think happy tears are such a good, good thing.
0: It's weird. I've never thought of being contagious as a value, but. It kind of is a cool concept. I mean, I've used this idea of ripples, that you create ripples that go out, but really it is about being contagious in whatever you put out there. And it's just as easy to be contagious with something awful as it is with good. But I guess we get to choose every day what kind of, what kind of, what we're infecting the people around us with. And infection always sounds like such a negative word, but we're really infecting the people around us and we get to choose. Do we infect them with something good or do we infect them with something bad?
1: It is so true, and I will tell you, and this can sound a little bit harsh, but throughout the course of my career and my life, I have also made conscious decisions about the people who are in my life, and just because they're an door neighbor or they're a family member, if they are a very negative person and they're critical and they're making you feel bad, you don't have to spend and volunteer to spend time with them. You may not be able to fix that, right? So I had to accept, not everybody is like me. Not everybody wants to be happy and wants to do good and wants to feel good. Some people are struggling, who, who knows what the issue is, And but sometimes I have to recognize that maybe more than I can take on and I don't need to let it discourage me. So it's kind of a tough love thing, but there's times that I think you surround yourself by people who make you happy, share that same positive point of view, are willing to put that into their everyday life, and then you will be even more successful. But I think you can't do it solo, and you can't do it if you're mired in negativity uh, and being prevented from is in thinking in, in that way to say, I, I want to I have an impact. I want to have a positive impact. And not just because, you know, the beauty is it's the right thing to do, but it also feels so good, right? And, and then it encourages others who then, you know, without a doubt, the vast majority of people, when I've engaged them in charity work, thank me for giving them the opportunity to do something meaningful. How great is that?
0: What would you tell? You got one last thing you can tell the that day one version of yourself. Is there a lesson, something that gets taught, something that you, is learned, that you then later discovered just isn't true, and you'd want to warn her ahead of time? People are going to tell you this. Don't buy into it. What would it be?
1: That's a really tough one because there's so many, and I, I think each person is a little bit different. I. I think that you know I don't know that I, about the not buying into it because I'm not sure about those lessons. But I do think I would look the other way and say, listen to, you know, you know, just feel what is right at times. And I, you may learn in a textbook you handle it this way, but you, trust your instincts. And sometimes your instincts will be exact opposite of what you've been told to do or what you learned about in in typical behavior. And I think that that will go a long way, that our instincts genuinely are often, um, more often than not, I should say, um, spot on and that we should listen to them. We may have done the same exercise 99 times, but if your instinct telling you this one time to say, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go on this side. Because I'm feeling it's the right thing to do. Um, listen to that.
0: What do you think uh, that day one version of yourself would think of learning that the older version of herself has the nickname BIC?
1: <laughs> I think um, I think it's it's just pretty damn amazing. And my old version of myself would say, "Damn, I'm going to do all that. No way." <laughs>
0: <laughs> just, just a lister's note, what, cool. is, what is BIC and how did it come about?
1: Oh, so, um, well, this is an example of kind of uh, me as um, a coach and a leader and a, and a boss. And we were doing an event that was a big um, fundraiser, right? And, and over a million dollars invested in it and a lot of people coming. And we had a new event uh, director on staff and I walk in and, you know, one of my beliefs in being um, a leader and being a manager and a supervisor is that you have to be willing to do what your staff is doing. And so sometimes that means, if it means, you know, stuffing envelopes or crawling on the floor and helping hook up computers, you're not exempt. You know, carrying boxes of wine, what you're not exempt. Demonstrate. That sends a message is huge, right? So that's important to me is that you really demonstrate through your actions that you're willing to do in this teamwork. And when we do events, I have a rule. It's all hands on deck. Every staff member participates. You know, everybody's on the events team and it's important. When we have a rush wish, everybody's on the program team. That's just my belief, right? So I'm at this event. We're all setting up and we're all dressed down, moving cases of wine and tables and chairs and, and I can see this uh, uh, gentleman just dressing down one of our, our events director and he's just, he's just chewing her out. Uh, and, and the, the body language, he's leaning into her and it, um, and I approach and I can start to hear him and his tone, it, everything is wrong. Right. And he's just, she's, he's just, it's repulsive, right? It's like no one deserves. And she's very, very nice. I've worked with her for years no one deserved. There's nothing she could have done that would deserve that anger, right? The spewing out of his mouth, and so in just defense of her, it, because it, you know it's a team and it's important, and it, all the volunteer, everybody can hear what's happening. I walk up to him and I kind of stand in his face and I'm not a, a you know, a petite woman <laughs> in any way. I like to say I'm 5'12", because it sounds shorter. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I got right in his face and I said, how can I help you? And he immediately kind of turns his body and focuses on me and just says, who are you? And I said, well, I am the bitch in charge. And how can I help you? And that just changed the tone. And everybody was like, oh, (laughs) and he knew right then to say, no, you leave her be. If you have someone that you want to deal with, I'm here. And that moment, um, I don't even know where it came from. I don't think I'd ever used that term. I don't know. I don't even know. i would heard it before, but that became my nickname from that moment on. So everybody refers to me as the BIC. And I wear that proudly, actually.
0: And, and what I found interesting is that I once heard you say in that moment, it was about letting the team know that sometimes you have to step in for them because they're your team. And I just loved that. And, and what's interesting, I just wanted to tell you this is that I've used that term for me. Uh, I often will do it when I'm working out and don't want to go again. And I just kind of remind myself, Drew, you are the bitch in charge, uh, because I just thought it was such a powerful, <laughs> empowering statement. And it and. Yeah, it seems gendered, but I use it all the time. And I just want to let you know that I really enjoy using that term to remind myself that ultimately, you're always the person who gets to make the call. But sometimes you got to step up for the people that that, that you lead. And I just thought it was such a wonderful story. I'm so glad you, you were willing to tell it.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> sometimes it's a little embarrassing because uh, those things happen and it's kind of organic. but. Uh, I, I, it is a term that I think about affectionately and, and it is good for me to remind myself too. There's times that you have to step up and even though you don't want confrontation then you don't, like can't we all just, And but there's times that you have to, there's always going to be conflict if there's more than one person in the room and you have to figure out, sometimes it's up to you to go and resolve that conflict.
0: Patricia, a huge part of your life was spent granting wishes for children And to do that work, you had to work with adults to do it. You may know more about what people wish for than anyone alive. Do wishes and dreams change as people get older? And why?
1: Well, first of all, I want to mention, and I say this a lot, um, I'd much rather work with children than grown-ups any day of the week. (laughs) I find children don't have all the biases that grown-ups have, right? But not that said, there are many um, adults who are extraordinary. You know, I think um, you don't understand the power of a wish, at least in the, in the circumstances around how we select um, children for Make-A-Wish. So one of the amazing statistics I love about Make-A-Wish is that every child who's medically qualified, meaning they have a life-threatening medical condition, gets a wish. And sometimes that's really hard to keep up with the demand and to fundraise, but it always fueled me. Adults, I often get the comment like, oh, I, if I had a wish or if I... And, you know, I don't think that they... Can surround, put their head around that because they're not faced with a life-threatening illness at that moment. So it's easy to say like, oh, I'd want to go here. Well, I think if you really thought about it and you change your mind, you might do what is meaningful to you. This sounds like fun and exciting and I want to go to Tahiti and that's all fine. But you might, if faced with a life-threatening illness, might say, I'd love to reunite my family and have a family reunion. And I think um, partly the circumstances make you think you're know, much more profound experience, right? It's not just about what would be cool; it becomes what is meaningful. You know, if I don't, if I have a finite amount of time that I'm faced with, which is very likely given this diagnosis, and the outcome could be poor, and I have a struggle ahead of me, and or maybe the prognosis is great, but I've got two years of very ugly treatment what is more important to me right now? And I think that that changes your focus. And I watched it in so many of the children have a very mature look on life because they know, you know, what their diagnosis is. They know, you know, going to the hospital that some kids get sicker and some kids may not survive at all. And um, I think that they understand that challenge of appreciating, well, how, what are you going to do today to make it special like that? that lesson I learned when my own mom was faced with terminal cancer. And I, I think it's just a very different wish you would request if you're truly thinking about making today meaningful.
0: Has it changed the way you live every day? Pardon me? Has it changed the way that you live every day?
1: Um, yes, I think it reinforces that piece to surround myself by others who are positive just because life is short and I have witnessed it firsthand. And it, it certainly has an impact on me. Every time I see my family, one of the reasons why I cry happy tears to see them, I'm also aware that life is so precious and someone can be taken from you at any time. So it's just surround yourself with people you love. Um, I have what I call family um, who are not blood relation, but they're, They're my family, you know, and I I have those in addition to my my own family. And I think that you're reminded when you work at a place like Make-A-Wish how how important it is.
0: And finally, what's next for you? And uh, tell us about the movie.
1: (laughs) hmm. Um, what's next for me? So right now, um, I'm consulting. I have a couple of pretty um, interesting projects and some crowdfunding um, and helping companies develop uh, philanthropy plans. Um I'm still doing public speaking. I'd love to to work with you again guru. Um, and um, I have some other um, thoughts uh, about what I do next, uh, but uh, I'm still kind of playing around of, about where it can be most meaningful the uh film the the Julia Roberts film which she's producing and starring in um, is in production I, um, the screen play the screenwriting will take a couple of years um so it's uh i i don't i don't know i don't even know if they have targets I think it's far too soon for them to um, indicate uh, when they would begin serious, you know, actual filming. Um, but uh, I know the uh, they've hired a screenwriter, uh, Lucy Alibar, who wrote *Beast of the Southern Wild*, and I've had the privilege to meet her. She's an amazing human being. And uh, so we'll see. I have, and I there's times I want to just apologize to all my family and friends and say, look, if you're in the film and you're not portrayed like, I'm sorry, if you're not, I'm sorry. (laughs) I have no control over those things. It is, you know, based on a true story. Um, And so I have no idea, you know what, I'm I'm not producing it, so I I can't say it's all happening. Um, uh, Warner Brothers and in Hollywood, so I, I I don't know what that looked like.
0: Well, thank you very. It must be a surreal experience. Uh, you've had a lot of them, and uh, I do, do want to say that you have sent out some energy that that's really impacted me positively. In just the the few short times we've interacted, thanks for doing this. I want to wish you and your whole family a very very happy Thanksgiving, and thanks for for sharing ideas with us.
1: Thank you so much. And I hope to spend uh, more time with you in the coming months, too, Drew. I find great inspiration in in your message and what you do. So let's let's, let's work together.
0: Amazing. If you ever need help, I will not say no. Apparently, it's impossible. (laughs) Thanks, Patricia.
1: Thank you, Drew. Bye.
0: And that brings us to the end of another Day One Leadership Podcast. My sincere thanks to Patricia Wilson. Thanks for the work that you do and for giving me kind of a pick-me-up when I needed it. Next week, we've got another extraordinary guest coming in. We've got GMO activist or anti-GMO activist, Rachel Parent, who's going to come and join us. Here's just a sample of some of what you're going to hear from Rachel. I think that we're all in this together, obviously. I mean, we're global citizens. Um, We have to unify and make the world a better place. But personally, I think just by taking small actions and doing your best at what you do, that's what makes the real change. Because I think change starts with the individual. Once we change as people, then the world can change collectively. You might remember Rachel from a YouTube video that showed her taking on Kevin O'Leary of Shark Tank and Dragon's Den fame. She is an extraordinary young woman. Someone told me once that she's pretty smart for her age, Rachel's really smart for my age, and I'm thrilled to be able to share some of her ideas next week about youth and how it pertains to leadership and how it affects how people perceive young leaders in a world that generally says that leadership is for the older and more experienced. It's a great conversation, make sure you tune in. Also, don't forget to check out dayoneleadership.com. That's where we share our blog every Monday, of course the podcast every Wednesday, and our video vlog where I take a deep look at a different value every single week. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter at Day One Leadership. That's Day One with D-A-Y and the number one, leadership. You can keep up to date on everything that we're doing. Thank you all so much. It's always a thrill to get to share these ideas with you. I'm Drew Dudley. This is Day One. Every day's Day One. Thanks for listening.